Uh, the reading this evening is taken from Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 4 to 14. Before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided for him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and the incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here, I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and the musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan, son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Dawn. Uh, some of you have been following through as we've tracked through Nehemiah the last few weeks. If you've come here for the first time and uh, we've got the end of Nehemiah and you missed all the beginning, but I'm sorry, but I will catch you up just now and then I'll pray uh, and then we'll look at what God's got for us tonight. We're about 450 years or so before Christ. Uh, Nehemiah was uh, of Jewish origin, but his family had been deported into exile when uh, Jerusalem was destroyed about 600 BC, when Daniel and others were taken into Babylon. The Babylonians themselves had been overrun by the Persians, and the Persian emperor had allowed some Jews to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. They'd started rebuilding the walls, but hadn't got very far, and it had all gone wrong. And now, Nehemiah, who has become, stayed behind in Persia with his family, he's become a really senior trusted official of the emperor. He's the cupbearer to the king, so he tastes the wine before the king drinks it. So if anybody's going to poison the king, Nehemiah gets it first. That means he has to oversee all the supply chains if he values his life. He's an important guy. He's trusted. And he hears that Jerusalem is in a mess. Now, there's no email or texts. It's three months by camel, probably, for news to get there and back. But he is, and he is deeply disturbed. And a few weeks ago, we saw how he prayed and wept and talked. Took weeks to work out what to do. 
And he approached the emperor and said, will you let me go back to the city of my ancestors to rebuild the walls? They're in disgrace, the people. And the emperor said yes, and off he went. Uh, and we looked at the opposition he faced as he got these walls rebuilt. Tremendous opposition from outside, uh, particularly uh, Sanballat and Tobiah, the baddies whose names crop up the whole way through. You will recognize those names tonight if you've been tracking through with us. If you haven't, I commend reading Nehemiah. It's kind of his journal. It's his story. There's a few lists you might want to go over and a few names you'll struggle to pronounce. But good job, Dawn. Uh, but it tells his story of the opposition he faced and how they rebuilt the wall, amazingly, in 52 days. And that gave confidence to the people of God. Because uh, Nehemiah is not primarily about rebuilding the walls, it's about rebuilding the people of God. So last week, we saw how they held this great festival, a bit like a sort of new wine in the summer. They camped for a week, they listened to the word of God, they wept when they found out what they should have done that they hadn't. They were full of joy and feasting, and there was just a bit of a revival going on. The people of God, now the walls were secure, had confidence to worship their historical God. Now, we are now 12 years later, and it's all unraveled. So what we're looking at tonight is how do you keep a work of God going? It may go okay for a bit, but how do you make sure it doesn't unravel down the years? How do you keep going for the long haul? <clears throat> or as an individual Christian, how do you keep going for the long haul? How do you make sure that in 12 years' time you are still zealous for the Lord, that the churches you work with, the ministries... Uh, you students, there'll be about four generations of students after you, but how do you try and ensure that there's stuff going well for the long haul? That's what we're talking about tonight. So let's pray, and then we'll get into the chapter. Lord Jesus, we thank you for Nehemiah and his passion for you and for your name and your honor. As we sang that song, at your name, Yahweh. His passion for your name to see the city that bore your name rebuilt and the people re-energized give to us some of his passion for you and give us grace to live for you not just this week not just in 12 years time but the rest of our lives and come and speak to us now as I share what you've given to me from this chapter will you speak to us by your spirit and we pray for each person here there'd be something we can put into practice that will help us follow you faithfully down the years and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've recapped uh, a fair bit. Let me just recap one more bit. When they had this big festival back in Nehemiah chapter 8, uh, they followed it up in chapters 9 and 10. We're working out, now, what have we got wrong down the years and what do we need to get right? And they particularly promised they were going to do three things. We are going to provide money to the temple to pay for the Levites. They're the people who led the worship, the musicians, they taught, uh, they ran the temple. They said, if we don't provide money for them, they won't be there, the worship won't happen. So we will give some of our money to them. That was a covenant pledge. They said, we're going to honor the Sabbath. God's commandment said, honor the Sabbath. We won't do trading on the Sabbath. And they knew that if they intermarried with people from other religions their worship would be compromised. So they said, we won't intermarry with people from other races. It wasn't a race thing. It was an honor of God thing. And those were the three things they said, we will do. Now, 12 years later, Nehemiah comes back and finds that all three of those vows have gone. Now, I don't think 
that as soon as Nehemiah had gone back to Persia, they all got together and said, phew, he's gone. Let's go back to the good old days. Now, I'm sure it wasn't like that. I suspect that it started with a bit of drift, just a little bit of drift. Just, yes, we'll keep doing God's stuff, but we'll, let's just not be too extreme. I mean, they wouldn't have done it the way we would do it. We're British, you know, let's, be, let's just be sensible about these things. I suspect there was drift. And whenever I talk with people who've come a cropper in their faith, it rarely happens just like that. There's usually been a long period of drift. So in the New Testament, um, the, right, the book of Hebrews is written to Jews who are in danger of drifting away from their faith in Jesus. So Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 says this, We must pay the most careful attention to what we've heard so we do not drift away. And the picture is of a... Uh, I don't know if you've ever taken a rowing boat on the river or a punt on a river down in Stratford or Oxford or somewhere like that. And you, it's a summer's day and you take your rowing boat or your, your punt and you have a bit of a picnic and you pull up and you sit on the grassy bank for your picnic. Um, normally you would tie your boat up so it doesn't drift away. If you don't tie it up, uh, from time to time you look back and see it's still there. Uh, but if you pop into the pub for an hour or something like that and come back, you may find it's drifted away down the stream, just gently, 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 gently. And that seems to be how things happen. We'll come back to this at the end. But 12 years later, there's been so much drift that it's like it's dramatic from where we were in chapter 8 when they were worshipping God wholeheartedly and making these vows. Now it's not happening. And Nehemiah comes back and he is horrified. He finds the temple life has gone. He finds the market life has gone wrong. He finds home life has gone wrong. So their religious life, their commercial life, their domestic life. And if you want three isms, we find secularism, materialism, and pluralism. And these three are alive and well today. And the people of God can drift with one or other of these just as easily. So let's look at, we'll look at all three. The first one is the life of the temple, the worshipping life of the community. And we find that secularism has got in and they're not worshipping God anymore. So this was the bit that Dawn read to us um, from chapter 13 at the beginning. Uh, where should we pick this up? We'll pick it up at verse 4 of chapter 13. Uh, Dan, our technician, is doing a cracking job. When I go through, I give him my notes, but it doesn't, oh, I don't always follow them very exactly for where the, uh, where the verses land. So... Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God. This is where the people should bring their money and all the stuff. So the Levites had food and grain and oil and they didn't have to go and earn a living so they could do the worship of the temple. Eliashib was closely associated with Tobiah. Now if you've been following, Tobiah has been one of the enemies of the people of God in pretty much every chapter. I won't chase it all through. But all the alarm bells ring. And Eliashib had provided Tobiah with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, the musicians and the gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priest. This all happened while Nehemiah wasn't there. So instead of the storerooms having the stuff for the Levites, storerooms not being used for that, and Tobiah, the enemy of the people, has set up his business there instead. This is not Good. Let's carry on to the next. Keep going. Uh, when Nehemiah came back, he learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of the God. I was greatly displeased, and I threw out all his goods out of the room. 
I gave orders to purify the rooms. I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. Uh, and let's read a bit more. I learned the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them. So the Levites and musicians responsible for the service, they'd gone back to their fields. We'll pause it there. They hadn't got stuff provided for them. They needed to earn something. They needed to eat. They needed to live. So they'd gone to do that. So the worship and everything of the temple has gone. Now, they had vowed before Nehemiah went that we will give the money to provide for the Levites and the worship. So chapter 10, verses 37 to 39, says this. They said, this was what they'd promised 12 years before. We will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God the, for the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of our trees, of our new wine and olive oil. And we'll bring a tithe of our crops for the Levites, for it's the Levites who collect the tithes in the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron will accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes. So the Levites will bring a tenth of the tithes to the house of God, to the storerooms of the treasury. And the people of Israel are to bring their contributions of grain and so on. You get the idea. They had promised they would provide. <clears throat> uh, and instead of that, there is no storeroom left with the stuff in it. Now, Nehemiah had left storerooms full. Chapter 12, verse 44. At the time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms. He had left it all. They'd promised they'd do it. There was a system set up. There's money provided. The worship of the temple and the teaching can go on. And now Nehemiah comes back. There's no stores in the storerooms. Tobiah, the enemy of the people of God, is running his business from the temple instead. The Levites aren't there. There's no worship going on. They've gone back to their fields to go back to work. And the temple ministry is not happening. It's tragic. The enemy of God is in the temple of God with permission from a priest of God. This is disastrous. And I doubt it happened just like that. It would have been drift, drift, drift. So Nehemiah throws him out, a bit like Jesus going into the temple to purify it. Uh, I don't know how it happened. It doesn't tell us. What do you think happened? Eliashib just saying, oh, we haven't quite got enough grain and oil for the Levites. Now Tobias said he'll rent a room. That would bring some more income. We'd be able to worship the Lord a bit more. And it just comes in drift by bit by bit. That happens so easily in a church, in a cathedral, in a CU, and in anything. It's so easy to drift if God is not going to be followed as God. And Nehemiah says it's evil, this drift, verse 7. He said this evil thing. Now the big issue here is who is God for us? Is it God or is it money? Tobias's business opportunity had called the shots. Jesus said, Matthew 6, verse 24, you cannot serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And around about this time, a few years later, probably, Malachi wrote to the people of Israel. I've never quite managed to pitch up how this... I think Malachi is pretty much the last thing written in the Old Testament, so it's probably a bit after this. In which case, things have drifted again, because in Malachi's day, they're not bringing the tithes into the temple, so the worship's not happening. And Malachi says this to them. It's the same problem. This is Malachi chapter 3. Ever since the time of your ancestors, this is the Lord speaking through Malachi, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. God says to them, you're under a curse, the whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. 
See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing there won't be room enough to store it. So in this first issue of are we going to trust God or are we going to trust money, Jesus says you can't serve both. Uh, And one of the basic things of Christian discipleship is to give the first proportion of income. A tithe is kind of biblical. Christian is a bit more generous than that. If you're poor, a tithe is very generous. If you're wealthy, a tithe is is just starters. Uh, Let's do it the other way around. Uh, When the sales come, they're usually after Christmas. They'll probably be before Christmas this year. That was how it was starting. You go for a bargain. When they say 50% off, you say, great. When they say 10% off, you think, oh, might not bother, that's nothing, is it? When it comes to giving 10%, how different? What, all of 10%, that's enormous. Uh, tithe 10% is a bit like uh, when you're learning to ride a bike. It's, you have stabilizers uh, to get you going until you don't need them anymore. It's a, a good principle, but Christian giving is generous, which should mean at least that. But honor God with your money. Uh, ministry costs money, we give to his kingdom, we give away to mission partners. It provides for the worship. You give to the Christian Union for the mission to happen next term. The events that you give to the church, we give to mission partners. We provide so the ministry can happen. And in Nehemiah's day, they didn't do that and the ministry stopped. We also give because Jesus is Lord of our money and we want to honor him. Uh, this isn't really meant to be a money sermon, so I'll, I'll stop because I've got two more things to go and I don't want to be here all night. Uh, I will preach a bit more money in about a month's time. But we honour God with our money. Jesus is Lord. Uh, If you haven't sorted your giving out, please do for your health of discipleship and for the health of the church. Uh, And if you go to the welcome desk, we can help you out with that as well. Anyway, Nehemiah comes in and he sorts this out. He throws out of the temple Tobiah and all his stuff. They start regathering grain and oil and stuff for the Levites so they don't have to go and earn earn money doing a proper job elsewhere and they can worship. So that's the first thing. Uh, The second thing that goes wrong is this trading on the Sabbath. So if they've got to honor God with their money, they've also got to honor God with their time. So let me read to you the next bit of the chapter. There's three things in this chapter. We're going to do them all. So this is chapter 13 of Nehemiah from verse 15. Are you sitting comfortably? Enough. Uh, if, the back, if the chair's digging into your back, it means you're slouching. Just sit, sit back a bit and you'll be fine. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is this wicked thing you're doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us in our city? Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not open till the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I'll arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. 
So they had pledged the three things. We'll give money for the Levites in the temple. They'd stop doing that. We will not trade on the Sabbath. They're trading on the Sabbath. And Nehemiah comes to sort this out. And now just as we honor God with the first proportion of our finances, so we honor God with the first bit of our time. Uh, the first hour of the day, best time to pray. The first day of the week for us. Uh, for them, it was the Sabbath, the seventh day for us, the Lord's Day, the Sunday. We give God time and we put him first with our time. Uh, the Sabbath was given for two reasons in the Old Testament. Uh, for creation, God's wired this one in seven rhythm into us. It's that people get hung up about the, creation of, about the time of creation and the days. But the real miracle is the creation of time. And God has wired seven days into a rhythm. We'd never know if God didn't tell us. We know there's a 24-hour rhythm. We can work that one out. The sun and the moon come round. Uh, we know there's a monthly rhythm. The moon comes round every month. We know there's an annual rhythm. There's summer and winter. There's nothing in creation that shows us there's a seven-day rhythm, but God told us. And when in different societies, they've tried to do it differently. So Russia tried this oh, a few hundred years ago or a couple hundred or maybe not even that 100 years ago. The French Revolution, they tried a nine-day week or a 10-day week. It doesn't work. There's less productivity. Henry Ford tried it when he's going to get the Model T done to get his workers to work all seven days to get more done. And he said at the end, we went slower. They we had to spend the next week patching up the mistakes they made on the seventh day because they were too tired. It just, it just doesn't work. We're, God's wired us with a one-in-seven rhythm. So the best way is to learn and honor the Lord by taking your rests and your Sabbath. You can learn the hard way, if you like, by working all seven days and burning out and then think, I should have done it God's way. Uh, but it's better to do it, better just to learn. And Nehemiah comes to sort this out. <clears throat> now, the other reason for the Sabbath is given in Deuteronomy 5. It's to remind them that they were rescued from slavery. And our Sabbath day the day we give to the Lord to worship is the Sunday we remember the resurrection, we worship Jesus. But the big deal is saying, this is a day not to worry about productivity, not to worry about earning money. This is a day to worship God, to remember that we're made for eternity, and to trust that the Lord is going to run things without us. Uh, now, for most people, that's a Sunday. For me, obviously, Sunday's quite a busy day. So my Sabbath is a Friday. Uh, and quite often on a Friday, the temptation comes, just get that job done, just get that. And it's always a discipline. Say, no, Lord, this is your church and your work. I'm going to trust you with this. And it always seems to work out. It's like we trust God with the first bit of our money. I don't quite know how he does it, but there's enough left. We trust God with our time. He has a way of enabling things to happen. Uh, now, I'm not going to preach a whole sermon on Sabbath, any of it more than a whole sermon on money. Brilliant book on this is John Mark Comer's book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Our world has hurry sickness. And there's a superb chapter there on Sabbath. And for our generation that is permanently wired and always on, this ancient discipline that Jesus observed of the Sabbath is so good for us. Now, when I was growing up, the Sunday was the most boring day of the week. There was nothing happened. The only thing opened was the boring village church where my dad was the vicar. And that was about the most exciting thing, and that was dire. <laughs> now it's the other way around. Everything is open, isn't it? It's Sunday football and rugby and garden centres and busyness and all the rest of it. And we have to learn to negotiate this. But God's word tells us that the Sabbath is for our good, 
the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Ask Jesus how you do this. Don't be Pharisees about it. Goodness me, when I was a student, I remember saying, I'll give the Lord his day and not working till I got to midnight on Sunday and then starting work to get my stuff done for the Monday morning. That's stupid. <laughs> that was just, that, uh, you work out how you take your Sabbaths. Um, but we all have to work this out. And John Mark Comer is very helpful. Uh, but it's not a surprise that this was a problem. The Levites weren't teaching. They weren't worshipping. They weren't teaching. People forget the Sabbath is meant to be not trading. So, of course, things drift and they slip. Uh, let's do the third one. The Levites aren't teaching. So they're not teaching about don't intermarry with people from other religions because they'll lead you astray from God. They'd pledged they would not marry people from other religions, so they didn't lead them astray. Nehemiah comes back and he finds this is happening. So let me read to you the third strand of this, the third and last of three. Uh, here we are, Nehemiah 13 from verse 23. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, or the language of one of the other peoples, and they didn't know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them. I called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. Uh, that isn't our style here, but Nehemiah was pretty cross about this. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joyada, the son of Eliashib the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. If you've been following and tracking through with us, Sanballat is Tobiah's mate. They are the enemies of the people of God from another religion. And the high priest not only has got Tobiah in the temple with his business, He's intermarried with Sambalat as well. It has gone horribly wrong. And Nehemiah was not impressed, as you could tell. Now, again, this is not a racial thing. We find people from other races included into the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Glorious examples like Rahab from Jericho or Ruth the Moabitess, who wind up in Jesus' genealogy. When people come to worship the true God and join his people, great. But when God's people intermarry with people who worship other gods and let go of worshipping the true God and start worshipping the other gods, this is not great. And God is not impressed. Uh, there, yes, even Solomon was led astray. Solomon, I have no idea. He's meant to be the wisest man out and he married hundreds of foreign women. I can't see how that's wise in any respect, but he was, he was led astray. But the children couldn't even speak the language of the Jews. How could they worship God? Now, we are told in the New Testament a parallel with this. Uh, it's not about other races or ethnicities. All are welcome, black or white, whatever ethnic background, Jew or Gentile, all can be one in Christ Jesus. What matters is living with Jesus as Lord. So St. Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.14 says this, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? If, the Lord call, if you're not married yet and the Lord calls you to marry, marry someone who shares your Christian faith. If they don't share your Christian faith, don't go there. 
I have seen too many people down the years lose their Christian faith because of marrying someone who doesn't share that Christian faith. There are glorious exceptions where it works the other way around. My rough and ready reckoner is about one in ten. Nine out of ten give up. And the word of God says, don't be unequally yoked. It's not necessarily just about marriage. It may be business partnerships and things. You have to work out what we do about this. But if Jesus is your Lord and you're going to live closely with someone else, however that is, Jesus needs to be their Lord too. Or you will be dragged astray, probably. Uh, Now, I am not going to pull out your beard or punch you or whatever it was that Nehemiah did. But I'm warning you, be careful. And it starts with drift. I've never known any Christian say, well, Jesus, I love you, but I'm just going to go the other way. It just starts with drift in all these things, whether it's money, whether it's time, whether it's relationships. Honour God with your time, with your money, and with your relationships. And the call of the Bible the whole way through, and these things are just as contemporary today as they were 2,500 years ago, is to live with Jesus as your Lord and live holy lives. I was preaching on Genesis 3 this morning where the evil one comes in the guise of a snake and says, isn't God a spoil sport? You can't have any of this. And he does that to us today. Isn't God a spoil sport? All these prohibitions. No, God is not a spoil sport. He's made you and he loves you and he knows how you work best. It's for your good. So let's come back to that verse from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Pay careful attention so you don't drift. Drift often happens at times of transition. I've seen people graduate from university loving the Lord Jesus. They move to a new town to get a job. They plan to join a church. They don't quite get there. They get into the job. They meet some people. I'll go to church next week. I'll sort that. They don't do it. They get the next week. And drift happens. It's so easy. We need each other. Uh, It can happen with your finances. It can happen with the time. It can happen with relationships. Now, all these things in the scriptures are written down not just to be entertaining bedtime stories to read to children in Sunday school or to keep me occupied as a vicar so I can study them and teach them to you for their own sake. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul tells us why we have these. These things happened to them, the Israelites, as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee idolatry. So this is written for us, these things, who follow Jesus. If you think it's not going to happen to you, watch out. But if you're there thinking, gosh, I feel these... I feel the pressure of honouring God with my money. I feel the pressure of honouring God with my time. I see the danger of dishonouring God in relationships. If you're aware of that and choose to put Jesus first, if you meet together with other Christians to pray into this, to hold each other accountable, prayer triplets, formations, small groups, whatever, uh, don't get isolated on your own. That's how it's easy to drift. We need each other. Uh, and we have the huge advantage that Nehemiah's people didn't have. We have God's Holy Spirit living in us. And he will strengthen us to follow him. Uh, So let's seek God first. And uh, learn from Nehemiah, who was most determined for what God thought of him, not what anybody else thought of him. Three times in this chapter, God, remember me. Verse 14, remember me for this, my God. Don't blot out what I've done for the house of my God. That was after sorting out 
kicking Tobiah out of the storeroom. Uh, then in verse 22, we get uh, with the Sabbath stuff. Remember me for this, my God. Show mercy to me according to your great love. And after sorting out the compromise with other religions, he says, uh, remember them, my God. They defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything, assigned them duties to their own task. I made provision for contributions of wood and so on. Remember me with favor, my God. Nehemiah is most concerned for what God thinks about him. And if that's your attitude, I'm going to be more concerned what God thinks about me than anybody else. You will be okay. You won't drift. And in 12 years' time, you'll be going strong and helping others. And that's our prayer. So let's pray it together. Band, would you come back ready to lead us in our last song? Please stand, and I'll lead in prayer. Uh, if you're new to us, let me just explain how this happens. Please stand. I'm going to lead in a prayer, and we'll be still for a couple of minutes and just listen for what the Lord wants to say to us tonight. These things are written as warnings for us. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your goodness. We praise you for the resources, the finance you've given us. We praise you for the time we have. We praise you for the privilege of worshipping you freely. We want to live with you as our Lord and honour you with our money and our time and in our relationships. But we recognise that the scriptures are full of examples of people drifting away and years later having given up. Have mercy upon us. Send your spirit on us now this evening. And in the stillness, please speak to us if there's one particular area we need to give attention to. Is there an area where we're drifting? Is there something we need to watch? Come Holy Spirit and minister to us in the stillness. we gathered to pray before the service we remember that God knows each one of us he knows you he knows what's happening in your life he loves you and he cares for you no temptation comes to you that he won't give you the strength to deal with so just tell him what's going on and ask for his help and encourage he wants to encourage you he wants to fill you with his spirit he wants to strengthen you ask him Sometimes we think we're so small and insignificant. We're not serious, like we're not big like Nehemiah. What can we do? Uh, someone had a picture as we were praying before the service of us as raindrops. Small, but together they can make a big difference. And just as the rain waters the earth and brings fruitfulness, so God has stuff for each one of us to do. Uh, and as we allow Him to use us, it makes a difference to others. And then there was one last picture. Uh, I'll share this lovely one. As someone was walking in, the skies were clear. Saw a vapor trail from an aeroplane. And just praying for to be clear. May our lives be clear and point to Jesus. Normally it's cloudy and you hear a vague rumble in the background. It's not very, you can't quite see what's going on. May our lives be clear. So Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. May our lives shine for you. May we be clear. Use us together.
as rain watering a dry land. Our nation is parched spiritually and drifted from you. Fill us and give us grace to call them back to you. And as we worship you in the last song, as we, uh, if any of us need prayer ministry, as we come for prayer, continue to pour your spirit on us. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.